Greetings again, everyone. I'm not going to make a mistake of preaching a sermon against wealth to this audience. Because as I look around, including yours truly, I'm wondering sincerely if the net worth of all of us would remotely approach $1 million, everybody in this auditorium today. I've heard of a lot of pastors who have preached really fire and brimstone flailing sermons about absenteeism at church. And of course the people who needed the sermon were out on the lake fishing and weren't there to hear it. It would seem equally a little embarrassing for me to give a sermon against wealth. That's not what I'm going to do, but I am going to request that we take a little while to look at a very puzzling statement of Jesus Christ concerning the Lord's Prayer, one verse of it, which says in Matthew 6 and verse 11, Give us this day our daily bread. And then a little later on, in the end of that chapter, he begins to tell us how we cannot serve God and mammon, and says that we are, in verse 25, to take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body more than raiment? He then gives the analogy of the fowls of the air, the lilies of the field, and that Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these, and concludes by saying, therefore, take no thought, verse 31, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Wherewithal shall we be clothed? Does that really mean that you, as a wage earner, a family man with children and school's about to start, have your head in the clouds, you're thinking esoterically, ethereally, philosophically about wonderful things of the Lord, or that you have taken a vow of poverty like some of the people in the Catholic Church have done? I well recall having gone to a huge basilica near Madrid where the kings of Spain used to reign, and they had tunneled completely through a solid rock mountain. And in the rear of it, there was a very beautiful big building built, but when you walked inside, it was merely a series of tiny cubicles for a particular order of monks who had taken vows of poverty. I think they were Franciscan, I've forgotten the order. But when they came to see this brand new building with its little cubicles about four by six feet with one little bench with a tiny little piece of wood for a pillow, because it was brand new right to the rear of this huge basilica, this order of monks decided that they would reject the offer of the Spanish government to move into this new building because it sort of hurt their sensitivities about luxury. I mean, there, was no, there were no really pieces of furniture. There was no lounge. There were no facilities. It was just a bare room with a wooden slap of boards to lie on and a piece of wood for a pillow but it was still luxurious for them. We hear about God's poor, and many people equate the condition of poverty with godliness. Now, I'm with you. I believe that the second martini for lunch bunch, the people who say, I'm not really this tall on a bar stool, are sitting there and say, I'm not really this tall, I'm sitting on my wallet. Or the people who have it made, who have big businesses, that have full bank accounts, that have... Uh, perhaps a lot of stock and uh, bonds and uh, money, mattress money tucked away, gold, silver, real estate, uh, multimillionaires, and I know a few people like that. They really have no time for God whatsoever. I think it is not so much that God does not love the rich as it may be the other way around. The poor recognize their need, and so the poor people generally tend to be religious people, and the very wealthy, the very rich, the successful tend to have no real time for God. But what is Jesus saying that you should take no thought about what you eat or what you drink? 
or how you're going to clothe the children, how you're going to earn a wage. Does that mean you should not make out a grocery list? You don't plan for next week? Is it wrong to store food? Is it wrong to own a freezer? Is it wrong to have meat that would last you for six months, to buy one whole cow or a half of a beef or steer at a time? There was a philosophy that got started in the parent church back some years ago that what we had to do was to continually sacrifice for the work. The work was everything. Because obviously it wouldn't take very long to prove this. We are living in that era which is the last part of man's civilization, nearly the end of 6,000 years of man's experiment, which is going to finally demonstrate that man cannot govern himself apart from his God. And the proliferation of nuclear weapons, and the arms talks, which of course never succeed, but only succeed in continuing to keep us in a sort of a gray area between that war which must not be fought, in which all mankind would perish, and the peace which apparently can never be achieved. And yet we're living in a time when many, many books and novels and motion pictures, television miniseries have portrayed the idea that perhaps a nuclear submarine captain simply goes bonkers or bananas, becomes insane, decides to blackmail an entire country. Or there's a conspiracy of generals in several countries. That was a book that was a bestseller recently, who are going to launch nuclear bomb World War III and rule over what remains. Or there are ideas about nuclear hijackings involving B-52s with nuclear bombs aboard, or nuclear-powered ships with nuclear weapons aboard, and so on. There's stories about people who stole a cruise missile and tried to hold up the entire country for billions of dollars, ransom, and so on. In a day in which we see countries such as Israel, South Africa, Bangladesh, India, China, and many other nations possessing nuclear weapons, and more than 80 countries around the world either already operating nuclear reactors, a side product of which is plutonium, with which they can manufacture low-yield, kiloton-range nuclear weapons, we know that proliferation of nuclear weapons is going on apace. It's very easy for me to prove, then, that the impermanence of our present civilization, the temporality of our lives, the absolute lack of any guarantees with regard to children, grandchildren, planning for the future, estate planning, financial management, should you invest in real estate, should you own stocks and bonds, should you be planning 20 years downstream, when you think you're living in the very last moments of man's experience, and the great tribulation is about to come, and a great economic collapse is going to occur. We are all going to be impoverished. Despotism will arise in Europe. A great nuclear bomb, World War III, is going to get started. I want to be brutally frank with you. I lived and I was reared in an environment in which wolf, wolf, was all I ever heard. As a boy walking to school in Eugene, Oregon in the 1930s, I remember talking to the grass on the lawns of my neighbors when it rained because I'd heard so many fire and brimstone sermons about a coming Armageddon and about a great world war. And of course, we were now looking at the potential of another world war in the middle, in the latter 30s, as Hitler was beginning to. Uh, send his, uh, you know, jackbooted German soldiers into the streets, marching and so on. 
And it was a very frightening period of time in those areas or those years just prior to the breakout of war in Europe and American involvement in it. But I'd heard so many sermons about the drought that when it rained, of course, it's still raining in Oregon. It rains about nine months of out of every year. But here in the late 30s, 39, long in there, I was actually saying, you know, drink grass because this may be the last chance you get. Now, on up into the 1950s and the 60s, even after World War II, I began to realize that some of those prognostications about Armageddon were wrong. And my father had realized they were wrong and began to change his tune about where we really were in biblical prophecy. Yet, in the late 50s, the early 60s, new scenarios came on the scene about 19-year time cycles and about alleged seven-year incremental punishments to befall our people's Israel. And once again, that syndrome of do not plan for the future. The future is already here. It's upon us. The immediacy of catastrophe was continually preached from the pulpit. Now, let me interject for a moment. Probably every one of us have played the game of, oh, if I'd only known sooner, with regard to an investment or with regard to education or real estate or certain opportunities that may have come our way in the past where if we just known, been in on the ground floor, made the right decision at the right time, we would be multi-millionaires today. I would be. I would be a multi-multi-millionaire if I had known when I first got out of the Navy and drove back and forth to see a buddy of mine in Long Beach through cities and towns like Downey, driving through nothing but farmland that took me about 45 minutes in all 1934 Ford to get there, and that I could have bought lot after lot after lot for $4,000 in areas around Bell Garden, Bell, Downey, and so on in California in like what is now the middle of downtown Orange County in Los Angeles, one huge sprawling city. One of our teachers in Ambassador College actually owned a duplex on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard in Coinga that he sold for like $26,000 in 1920. Today there's a huge office building sitting on that thing, probably worth $200 million, who knows. But we've all thought of things like that. If we'd only known, if we'd have made the right decision back years ago, in business or investments or whatever, we could have been multimillionaires. But no, in the 1960s, the attitude in the church about sacrificing for the work and the nearness of the beginning of the millennium or the tribulation to be followed by the millennium was such that actually it led the business manager at that time to give a very impassioned sermon in which a very heavy guilt trip was laid upon people that if you had more than $1,000 in the bank, in a savings account, you'd park somewhere, any kind of investment, that that was disloyalty to the work of God, that the work could better use that money than you could. Now, where are we today with regard to that same question, that same principle? Jesus says, Take no thought, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things. God acknowledges we have need of food, clothing, and shelter. Those are the basic necessities of life. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, material things, shall be added unto you. 
Take therefore no thought. Now my margin has a little number here and it leads me to the margin and says anxious thought. And sure enough, if you look up the original meaning of the Greek word, it does mean to take no nervous, anxious, concerned, overwrought thought for all of these material things that you have need of, because God knows and understands that you have need of them. And then Jesus concludes by saying, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Now, we've heard the song one day at a time, and we know we've heard the statement, the longest journey starts with but one step, and today is the first day of the rest of our lives, and all of the rest of the cliches. It is true that we must live life one day at a time. It's true that a multi-billionaire can eat only one steak at a time, sleep in one bed at a time, drive in one automobile at a time, and breathe one lung full of air at a time, just like the poorest person in Bangladesh. We must live one day at a time. But what about some of these other statements in the Bible having to do with wealth, with accumulating an estate, and with even leaving an estate to one's children and to one's grandchildren? Are riches, wealth, success, or abundance inherently evil? Is it something you should never plan for, you should never program your mind to achieve? Well, Abraham, one of the greatest men in the Bible, if you will read, was a very wealthy man. Abraham had great substance, and God increased his substance. He was the wealthiest man in the land in which he sojourned. Perhaps tens of thousands of head of cattle of sheep, of camels, horses, and goats. He had who knows how many dozens of servants, enough to actually mount a small army. When he gathered his herdsmen, he could go after kings here and there in small city-states and actually put them to flight and rescue his nephew Lot. Abraham had servants born in his tents. He was a man who was in that sense nomadic, but now he was sojourning in the land that God was going to give to all of his progeny. When Abraham died, Isaac inherited all of his wealth and continued to build on it. When Isaac died, Jacob came along, and he was a herdsman. Now, we know the story of Jacob and Laban, and of how he actually had to begin anew, and that God blessed Jacob because of his dedication to Almighty God, and that Jacob actually knew a little bit about selective breeding. And it shows, and I won't go into that, but it's very interesting that he had this peeling of these strakes to lay them down into the water gutters so that the cattle, which he knew in certain generations would evince certain mottled or speckled or ring-straked characteristics, he knew which bull with which cows were going to produce the calves that Laban was going to give to him. So he would lay down these cattle guards and make sure they mixed appropriately when it came into the water tanks. It's all in the Bible. And he ended up with a far bigger herd than Laban. And God blessed him. And that was not wrong in God's sight. David was a king. began as a shepherd boy. He did not become a king because of political machinations, but he became king because he was a man after God's own heart. And as a king, he lived in a palace, had a summer home. He had all of the material wealth and the beautiful things that any king could ever have. He was royalty. He lived in a sumptuous estate, sat on a throne, and had purple and velvet and silks and gorgeous things around him lived in a castle, a palace. Solomon, his son, when Solomon came along, he actually enlarged the Davidic kingdom, built the temple to God's glory, built great public buildings and public works, and also had carved for himself a throne of solid ivory. 
Emmanuel Velikovsky's book about Hatshepsut and some of the upper kingdoms of Egypt revealed Queen Hatshepsut is actually the Sheba of the Bible who came and who stated that there was no breath left in her when she saw all of Solomon's public works. If we'll turn back to the book of Ecclesiastes again right quickly to the second chapter, you'll see briefly just a little picture of that, of what Solomon said. He also gives us a picture of the end result of a human being who gave himself over to doing nothing more than creating beautiful things and amassing wealth. He said in verse 4 of chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, I made me great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and orchards. I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. Uh, you know, having been involved in the construction of many large buildings, having been involved in actual development construction of three college campuses, I've walked around with my hard hat with the engineers and the architects and the construction people with the huge big beams being put into place. Let me just tell you that when you're doing this, when you're involved in laying out huge public buildings, homes and palaces, and vast estates, when you're involved in balustraded, mirror-pooled, beautiful rivulets and streams and terraced gardens and all sorts of orchards of exotic fruit trees, you're out there walking around in that land with the people with the shovels and the spades doing the work, and you're, you're controlling it, you're designing it, you're telling them how to do it. And it takes up months and sometimes years of your life. And Solomon was deeply involved in just how to do all of this. He didn't just flip his hand and say, go plant me a garden, and then, you know, turn and eat a fig and uh, uh, watch the dancing girls. He was out there having a part in what was going on. I made me pools of water to water there with the wood. So irrigation projects bring forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle. So he had great cattle like the Hollandaise, and he had small ones like the little Shetlands. He had exotic cattle. Above all that were in Jerusalem before me, I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Now Solomon kept his head. It was in a sense a lifelong experiment. He never allowed himself to go completely overboard. He retained a little bit of introspection. But finally he said in verse 11, I looked on all the work that my hands had brought and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind. Vexation of spirit is improper. A striving after a handful of wind is what that means. You can no more grab a handful of water or a handful of wind in your hand than you can achieve total fulfillment, contentment, happiness, and an understanding of the purpose of human life by amassing material wealth. So then he turned to folly and madness and drunkenness and sex and sensual depravity and everything imaginable. And finally he said, beginning in verse 17, Therefore I hated life because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me because everything is vanity and a vexation of spirit or a striving after wind. But before that in verse 16 he said, There is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever, seeing that that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dies the wise man? As the fool. So Solomon determined, doesn't matter what you do in this life, you can't take it with you. Doesn't matter how much you accumulate, 
When you die, the worms eat your body just as quickly as they do a desperately impoverished poor person who died of some disease or malnutrition. Solomon never, believe it or not, achieved the complete understanding of the plan and the purpose of God. The best he could come up with in the end of his book, which is a book written from man's perspective, a book of futility, if you will, was fear God and keep his commandments because this is the whole man, is what Solomon said. But when he was all elderly and aged, as you will read, the hearts, or Solomon's heart was turned after the hearts of all of his wives and concubines, and he built many, many different idols and little tempietos to their gods, and came under God's condemnation as an elderly man. He became a candidate for suicide because he never really discovered the purpose in human life. He couldn't understand. He was puzzled over the fact that the rich and the poor all go to one place. The same event happens to them all. I knew a very wealthy man. I remember saying something rather out of line to him, and he took exception to me on one, of, one occasion. Uh, I won't give you his name, but he was a multimillionaire. He owned perhaps the largest share of stock in U.S. Steel. And he owned some great mansions, two of which were later on purchased by Ambassador College. He had the largest fruit orchard in the world up in uh, called Tagus Ranch in Central California Valley. He made his millions in the Masaba Range up in uh, Minnesota in iron ore, and later on, as I say, went into U.S. Steel. When I knew him, he was reclusive, elderly, lonely, bitter, his life was empty, and he was, I think, beginning to become quite senile because he would be seen in his big limousine, chauffeur-driven, going down to the Skid Row area of Los Angeles around Olive and Spring Street, getting out, going into the most terrible old run-down bargain basement stores and so on, and buying lamps or old shoes and various things he could neither use nor had any, you know, purpose in buying. And when his home was put up for auction by those who managed the estate after he died, that house was packed, just like a rat's nest, with just thousands of objects of all type, amidst a lot of things that in his earlier years were very, very costly, including like a harpsichord or a harpsichord during the day of Louis XIV, which, you know, was the predecessor of the piano, which plucked the string rather than hammered it. And on the underleaf of the lid, there was actually a fabulous hand painting, and the thing was gold gilt and all that. It was a fabulous piece. There were fabulous paintings in his home and so on. During his life, he and his son, his only son, got into a business argument, and the father sued the son at the law. And during the lawsuit, the son committed suicide. So this multi-millionaire father had to live with that. His wife died, and he buried her in a solid silver coffin. And he went his way to the grave in later years. I remember some of the students working for him on the grounds for $1.75 an hour, and then he wouldn't pay them after about a week's work on some imagined slight. After his death, it was found that there was a huge tank adjacent to his under underground uh, swimming, indoor swimming pool in the building, and that that tank was piped directly into the Pasadena, California city water supply, so that this gentleman had received who knows how many millions of gallons of unmetered water for more than 50 solid years. He was worth, he owned something like 47, uh, 47 they said, corporations outright, and was worth more than $200 million net at his death. But he was a miserable man, very unhappy. Let me give you a contrast. 
There was a gentleman who was born in Scotland back in 1835. His father owned a handloom business, and when steam was invented, it put the family out of business, so the father, with the kids, came to the United States. His name was Andrew Carnegie, and as a boy of 10 years of age, he became a bobbin boy in a cotton factory in the Pittsburgh area. A bobbin boy takes the spools of cloth or a fiber, you know, and runs around and puts them when the ladies with all the big belts running overhead in the cotton textile factory would, would cry out that they needed more yarn. And he would simply go to the box and load it up and take the old paper away and so on. And that was what he did as a 10-year-old boy. He was quite alert and intelligent. In a few months, he transferred to the engine room as an engine tender and began to learn about steam engines. He was also quite bright and was going to school part-time, trying to help feed his family and go to school part-time and study and hit the books at night. And he learned good penmanship and arithmetic. When that came to the knowledge of the manager of the plant, they gave him a chance to do some of the clerical work. And then he began to realize he could get a job and get out and breathe the air and go around and deliver telegrams. Well, he learned not only how to deliver telegrams, but he decided to learn Morse and telegraphy. So he got a job not as a delivery boy, but an operator. He became the telegraphic dispatcher then to the Pennsylvania Railroad and then eventually secretary to its general superintendent, Colonel Thomas Scott, who was named vice president of the railroad in 1860. When the Civil War broke out, Carnegie was named superintendent of the Pittsburgh Division of the Pennsylvania Railroad, was given a rank in the Union Army, and was actually responsible for all of the Eastern military railroads and telegraph lines during the Civil War. Well, in the meantime, he had discovered that a gentleman named Pullman had invented a new idea in a railway car. That is, seats that would convert into beds. And there was a company that had that patent named the Woodruff Company. Well, being a Scot, Carnegie was frugal, and he saved as well as earning money. And he began to invest in the Woodruff Company. Well, that really took off after the Civil War when railroads began to grow and when they began transcontinental. And his fortunes went apace, and he began picking up real estate around Oil City, Pennsylvania. Then gradually he began to realize the age of steam and mechanization and industry and the assembly line was coming to the United States and he began to realize that wooden bridges would soon be replaced with steel ones or with iron bridges. And so he formed a company called the Keystone Bridge Company, which built the first iron bridge across the Ohio River. And to increase his profits, he decided to invest in the iron mines so that the company could mine the iron and then he could use the Pennsylvania Railway to transport it into a plant which he put together to produce steel after a process he saw in England called the Bessemer process and then even went out and bought the source of the coal which made coke which is used in the Bessemer process of melting down the various impurities out of iron and putting it together in a uh, blend of metals to make steel. Finally, within 16 years, United States steel production had outstripped all of that of Great Britain and Carnegie was well on his way to becoming the greatest producer of steel in American history. He began to buy out some of his rivals, and one reason for his success is that every time there was a slack period, business failed, and perhaps a recession set in, he would use that time to improve the plant, purchase new equipment, get rid of some of the older equipment, so when business picked up, he was immediately ready to go into production, and the other plants couldn't keep pace with him, and he outstripped his competitors. 
He developed a vertical structure so that eventually iron, iron, uh, iron mined in the Masaba range was shipped in Duluth, Lake Superior, aboard ships that belonged to Carnegie, down into Chicago and other ports along the Ohio uh, Valley, put aboard the Pennsylvania Railway, taken down to Pittsburgh and produced steel out of his own mines, which of course helped build the United States. He made profits so that by 1900, the profits of Carnegie Steel were $40 million. That's worth probably 10 times that amount of money today. 1900, $40 million in 1900 would be worth an enormous great amount today. Now, why was he so successful? Well, Carnegie said it was his organization. He once was quoted as saying that if he were stripped in one blow of all of his holdings, all of his, his plants, his mines, his money, but he could keep his organization, he could keep the men that he had in key positions, he said, give me four years and I will build it all right back to where it was. Now, he was a little bit modest about his own genius, about his own ability to pick men with the right ability and to put those men in the key positions and then to keep those men loyal to him because they shared in the profits. He was a Scotsman, but he flew right in the face of what a lot of people say about Scotch or about Scott people. He was not picayunish or pecuniary. He was generous to a fault. He retired, of course, of a multi-multi-millionaire and wrote what is called the Gospel of Wealth. It became a rage both here and in England. It was a new doctrine, not noblesse oblige, but argent oblige, which meant the amassing of wealth implied the responsibility for the wealthy to give the surplus of that wealth back to the public for the general public good. During the lifetime of Andrew Carnegie, he gave away $333 million. He built 2,811 public libraries. He built universities, institutes, technical schools. He donated 7,689 organs to churches and was quoted as saying, I'm willing to endorse unreservedly all the utterances of the organs, but not of the preachers. He established the Carnegie Corporation in New York, and who hasn't heard of Carnegie Hall? And in 1911, that was established with about $135 million endowment for what he called the advancement and diffusion of knowledge and understanding. He also left behind him and established the following foundations or institutions, the Carnegie Institute of Pittsburgh with $24 million, consisting of a Museum of Fine Arts, Music Hall, in which I have been, Museum of Natural History, Institute of Technology, with a library school. The Carnegie Institution of Washington, D.C. He left $22 million to fund that, to encourage scientific research. The Carnegie Hero Fund is international, $10 million to fund the recognition of heroic acts performed in everyday life, and it's still alive and well today, so that children who save the lives of children can receive grants and recognition of an heroic act. He started the foundation for the advancement of higher education, of knowledge, for $15 million, and of pensions for teachers and to advance higher education. And also another foundation he funded for $10 million to advance the cause of international peace. Now, Andrew Carnegie is the exact opposite of the other multimillionaire I told you about. He was a man who became an author. He wrote many books, among them his own autobiography, which would make very interesting reading. I'm sorry to say I have not yet, yet read it. I intend to at uh, some time, I hope. He traveled extensively. 
and apparently lived a very, very full life. But his wealth never corrupted the man. He seemingly couldn't give away money fast enough, but he understood that giving away money is very, very difficult. That it carries a tremendous responsibility that you simply do not throw money out of the window of a passing car. He gave it away intelligently and selectively to do the most possible good that he could with the money that he had amassed in life. I want you to turn to a parable in Luke 19, the parable of the pounds, where Jesus Christ actually underwrites the free enterprise system. In Luke 19, this is a parable about money. The pounds, of course, mean the British uh, denomination or standard of money, which is pounds, or the pound sterling. He said, a certain nobleman went into a far country, he called his ten servants, and he said, in verse 13, chapter 19 of Luke, giving them ten pounds, or ten amounts of money, back in the days when this might have been translated, who knows what a pound was worth. In World War II, it was $5.35. Right now, it's barely over a dollar, I think, not even two dollars, about a dollar and a half. And he gave them ten pounds, a certain amount of money, and said, occupy, meaning take care of this, be busy with it, do busyness with it, and so on, till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. Now, logically, this is Jesus Christ who goes into heaven to be coronated. And, of course, it was rejected of his own people. And he is showing, by analogy, that people reject his rulership in their personal private lives. And he's also showing something more that has to do with our own natural, private, several, individual ability. It came to pass when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Anything wrong with trading? Is it wrong to buy and to sell and to make a profit? Is it wrong to charge interest, which is short of usury? There's an unfortunate mistranslation in this text. Actually, the Bible condemns what is called usury, which, of course, is just unreasonable interest beyond all reason. Then came the first, saying, Lord, your pound has gained ten pounds. Fantastic. That's a thousand percent increase. Not a hundred percent. That would be two pounds. This is a thousand percent. One pound parlayed into ten pounds. Well, thou good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, he calls that little. Been faithful in little. But his degree of increase was really great. Have thou authority over ten cities. Now, it says in Revelation 2.26 and Revelation 3.21, To him that overcometh will I grant power over the nations. No mayor has authority over a city. This is actually talking about real rulership with Christ in the kingdom of God, the millennium. And the second came saying, Lord, your pound has gained five pounds, 500%. This man had really achieved miraculous growth, 500%. And he said, likewise to him, be thou also over five cities. Another came. Now, only three are mentioned, but he actually called ten servants. And apparently he gave every one of the ten one pound apiece. He's merely for saving time, apparently, telling us about the ten, the five, and the one who gained nothing. Another came saying, Lord, behold, here is your pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin, mattress money. For I feared thee, because you are an austere man. You take up that you laid not down, and reap that which you did not sow. A sort of a negative attitude toward the guy who gave him the opportunity, wouldn't you say? Now, Christ acknowledged that as a businessman, that as a capitalist, if you will, he was, in fact, he said, an austere man, verse 22, 
taking up that he laid not down, investing, if you will, in the effort of others. And, as it says, reaping that which I did not sow. Wherefore, then, did you not give my money into the bank? Why didn't you take my money and put it in the hands of people who are professional managers of money, so that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury? And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that has ten pounds, the man who had succeeded the most. The others, shocked at this, said, Well, Lord, he's already got ten pounds. And then Jesus said, I say unto you that everyone which has shall be given. To everyone that has shall be given. And from him that has not, even that which he has, because he hasn't increased it, hasn't improved upon it, hasn't built upon it, shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies which would not that I should reign over them bring hither and slay before me. What's the lesson here? First of all, it is perfectly within the right and the province of the capitalist, the individual who had the money to give it to idle, unemployed people, to strike individual contracts, isn't it? It is his right to commission people to a particular job and to ask for an accounting. This doesn't say anything at all about unionism. It says that this individual, a capitalist, had a perfect right to do that. Let's look at Matthew 25, the latter part of this chapter, which is a parallel analogy that deals with a different uh, type of money, but it's the same principle. The talents, the parable of the talents. A lot of you have heard of that, no doubt. In Matthew, the 25th chapter, the kingdom of heaven, verse 14, is likened as a man traveling to a far country. It's the very same setup, the very same uh, scenario. He gave five talents unto one. Verse 15, to another, two. Now, here's the difference. The first parable, he gave all ten people one pound. To this one, he gives one man five, to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several ability. So God reveals that he adds gifts, spiritual gifts, perhaps gifts of his Holy Spirit, not so much that God is going to go around and hand us a lot of money or give us material things or start us all even with a certain bank account. That isn't the way God works. But certainly spiritual gifts according to his several ability. Straightway he took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made five other talents, 100%. And likewise, he that had gained, or he, he that had received two, gained other two, 100%. He grew exactly the same percentage-wise, proportionately, but he started with less ability. And Christ recognized that, and so he laid less responsibility upon him. But he that had received the one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants comes and reckons with them. And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, you delivered unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. One of my father's favorite texts one that I've heard all of my life, certainly words that I think every one of us would love to hear at the time of Jesus Christ's second coming. What could be better words to hear than Jesus Christ to look you in the eye and assessing and appraising your life based upon what he gave you to do with to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Well, the one with two came and said the same thing. And he gave him the same retort. Verse 23, good and faithful, 
You've been faithful in a little. I will give you much. Enter into the joy of the Lord. He that had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew that you're a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not strawed. And I was afraid. He was negative. He didn't have courage. He didn't have enthusiasm. He didn't have the guarantee of God's help. He wasn't willing to step out and do what he should have known he could have accomplished. He was just going to sit there. I've known a lot of people like that. There are a lot of poor people who are poor people by choice. There are, of course, a number of poor people who are poor people because other people have made them poor, have exploited them, have trodden them underfoot, have deliberately impoverished them, have perpetrated fraud, have stolen from them. But it is far more commonplace, especially in the good old United States of America, with our incredible welfare programs, where I see people sitting along a bridge with a cane pole, fishing all day long on welfare, who weigh about 240 pounds. You would be dumbfounded at what is happening in some of the inner urban areas, and I was educated on this in my last trip to Chicago, and I was told about young girls who actually would, in this case, approach one of our own ministers, who happens to be a black man and is in a teaching job, and have been approached where young single women actually will approach, as if they would have to do so, but I guess they do so to avoid disease, a man so they can become pregnant because under the current welfare laws, the more children they have, the more money they make. And then those kids get up to a certain age and they just simply take to the streets. They boot them out, but mom keeps getting the checks rolling in. There are an awful lot of people in our society who have their thumb in their mouth, who feel they were behind the door when the brains were passed out, who feel, oh, pitiful me, woe is me, it is somebody else's fault that I am poor, when actually it is not anyone else's fault but their own. It dumbfounds me to drive through Los Angeles today in areas that used to be just what I thought was Los Angeles, and to see New Chinatown, Koreatown, Taiwan Town, Southeast Asian Vietnamese Town, tens upon tens of thousands of Vietnamese, Southeast Asians, Taiwanese, and people from all those Southeast Asian countries, and they own businesses, stores, furniture stores, I mean car washes, and service stations, and grocery stores, and liquor stores, and I mean they come here and they believe those posters in the airports. America, the land of dreams, America is still wide open for people that want to seize an opportunity, that want to work. You take a look at the serving class of the United States today. Who are the maids? Who are the bus boys? Who are the waiters and waitresses? And the serving class below the waitress category, almost all of them are minorities and foreigners. There are hundreds of thousands of them in the big cities. You cannot go to the finest restaurants in Beverly Hills, New York, or Chicago and understand the accent of most of the people who wait on your table. The maids in hotels that I stay in when I go on personal appearance campaigns never speak English. They're Korean, Taiwanese, Chicano, newly arrived from Mexico, or whatever. But they are not the Caucasian American, because the average white American will not dirty his fingers to stoop to a serving class job. My brother-in-law went into the business of professional office building cleaning, and he just gave up on working with certain minorities and working with certain white people, and he zeroed in on 
the, the uh, Korean people, I believe. Yeah, Koreans. Families. And his business is just booming. He is very successful in his business. He started out with his son, a little pickup truck, and buckets and mops and vacuum cleaners, and contracted to clean a few offices, and did, you know, way late at night. I mean, working until midnight, one and two and three in the morning. Hired him a couple of people, branched out. Now he's got something like 23 employees and several buildings under contract. That's free enterprise in the making. But, you know, he hired families, couples, husband and wife, Orientals. They're not afraid to work. They believe in America. They believe that they keep working and keep saving. Someday they're going to have a business like that. They're going to have those trucks, and they're going to have other people working for them, and you bet they will. He takes care of them. He gives them good bonuses along the way. He wants their loyalty. He wants them to share in his profits. But they're not afraid of hard work that most Americans would call drudgery. Well, I could bore you to death with success stories about people who have come to the United States, first and second generation immigrants, and made a lot of the people around them just look like fools and have become multimillionaires in a very short period of time because they believed in America, believed in free enterprise, and believed in themselves, believed that it still is not too late to become a success in what is called the land of opportunity. A lot of people will not become a success because it's somebody else's fault. They're too busy feeling sorry for themselves. Now, Jesus Christ said it's all a matter of priorities. Wealth is not inherently evil in spite of what the Bible says about riches. I want to give you one quick example of that, and you will see that God does not say riches per se are wrong. It has to do with the way they are used and the way they are amassed or accumulated. In the fifth chapter of James, verse 1, Go to now, you rich men. What kind of rich men? Certainly not the Andrew Carnegie's of the world, not Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon. Go to now, you rich men. Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered and the rust of them shall be a witness against you. And you shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. Now, what was wrong with these rich men? Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud. There's the problem, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, or the Lord of hosts. You have lived in pleasure on the earth, the epitome of the example of Luke 16, of the rich man and Lazarus, who was a poor beggar, filled with sores outside the gate, and the rich man living sumptuously, completely oblivious and with callous disregard for the plight of a fellow human being. You have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. You've nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. So this kind of a person is one who has his wealth from ill-gotten means, who is a murderer, who is afflicted with avarice, cunning, greed, jealousy, vengeance, resentment, and with hatred which leads to actually murder. In one way, you could say this is an indictment against all organized crime. It's an indictment against the Sicilian families in our society who are directly responsible for a tremendous canker that is about to destroy the American home and the American school. And that is the drug scene. And there are many, many multi-billionaires, multi-hundred millionaires all over our country today 
It's right here in every little tiny town. You can't go to the smallest hamlet, the smallest village in New England, the tiniest little, as they call, poke and plum down in East Texas, poke your head out of the window, you're plumb out of town, what they say. But you can't go to a town the size of Big Sandy, Texas, or anywhere else without finding drugs, and plenty of them. And somewhere along the line of the suppliers, the providers, the people who import them, are these greedy, filthy people described right here, who are willing to destroy millions of lives for a buck. Anything for money. I was glancing through a magazine. There's an article featuring a former sex symbol on one of the so-called jiggle shows. Uh, Suzanne somebody, I forgot, not Summer, Suzanne somebody, anyway, uh, recently. And it told how she's really done a nosedive because she couldn't handle stardom. How many times have you seen that happen? Marilyn Monroe, Elvis Presley, people who were fabulous stars. They had the adulation of millions of people, and they made tens of millions of dollars in their lifetime. Elvis had a fleet of aircraft. He was giving away Cadillacs. He'd just see somebody that was walking by, one old lady walking by a Cadillac store. He said, would you like this Cadillac? She said, sure. He gave it to her. And then the guy who was a close friend of his that wrote the book, What Happened, Elvis? And we know the whole story about the booze and the drugs and, and the fact that for people like that, it seems like enjoyment must be acutely better. I mean, the enjoyment at their level has got to be greater enjoyment than at our level. they just got to have bigger kicks and thrills. So they seek drugs and they seek artificial ways to chemically alter their perceptions and their enjoyment of physical material life. And it ends up killing them. Some of them become suicidal. Others simply kill themselves because of destroying their own health. They can't handle it. But that's happened from time immemorial. Remember the program, The Millionaire? How many scenarios have we seen where wealth corrupts people? Where sudden wealth, a sack of money that fell out of the back of a branch truck one time, and the old unemployed janitor in New York City that picked it up and took it meekly down to the branch company and said, are you missing something? Had about $3 million in it or something. They ran the poor guy out of town. Americans hated him. They rang his telephone. They drove by blatting their horn and shouting obscenities. They pasted signs on his door. You filthy, dumb kook. They were so jealous. They were so eaten with avarice. They thought, why does it have to happen to that fool? Every American dreams of finding a sack of Brink's money in the street. What human being has not found a quarter lying in the dirt of the street and gets a neck ache for the next two hours looking all over the street to see if they can find any more? It's human nature. People want money to drop in on them out of the sky, but work, endeavor, industry, thrift, that's something else again. It's all a matter of values, as we will see, if we will simply look through the entire subject from Christ's point of view and see exactly what he said. Look at verse 13. It gives us a little bit of a sense of, of uh, perspective. Go to now chapter 4, excuse me, chapter 4, the book of James, verse 13, just above chapter 5 where we were. Go to now, or come on now, you that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. We're going to make a profit. We're going to make some money. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. For that you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live, we'll remain alive, we won't have a heart attack, we won't get run over by a car, a meteorite won't hit us, lightning won't strike us, killer bees won't bite us, fire ants won't sting us to death, an earthquake won't kill us, our wife won't casually walk by and let the hairdryer slip out of her hand when we're in a bathtub and say, oops, 
you know, something horrible won't happen to us. If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now you rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is a sin. Jesus Christ, in the Sermon on the Mount, if we will turn back to that where we have begun in the sixth chapter of the book of Matthew, said it is a matter of priorities. Almighty God does not condemn the successful. I don't have time to give you all the scriptures that tell us that a wise man lays up for his children's children, but that is in the book of Proverbs if you'd like to read it. Haggai 2.8, God says, all the gold and all the silver are mine. God is a multi-trillionaire, Heavenly Father. Third John 2 says, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health. And John 10.10 10 said in Christ's own words, I am come that they might have life, and they might have life more abundantly. There is nothing wrong whatsoever with getting ahead in life, with accumulating a certain reserve, with building an estate, with providing for your own, and in the case of men like Andrew Carnegie, providing for who knows how many thousands of others who can benefit from your own industry. He said very clearly, Seek ye first, verse 33 of chapter 6, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I've known a lot of people, and I know a lot of them right now, because I live in a neighborhood where I'm surrounded with them, who have struggled and sweat and worked all of their lives to accumulate a certain amount of money. And by the time they get to the point where they feel they have security, it's too late. There is no real enjoyment. There's no time to enjoy it. They're too old to enjoy it. They can't do the things they would like to do. I hope to have an opportunity to meet Malcolm Forbes, Jr. in the next few months. I don't know that I shall. But I know a very close friend of his who goes motorcycle riding with him all the time. A few months ago, about a month ago, Malcolm Forbes and my friend went motorcycle riding all the way from Forbes Trinchera Ranch up into British Columbia. Here's a man with a huge chalet in France who is a multimillionaire so many times over it's pitiful with gigantic homes and mansions and so on. Forbes magazine is just the tip of the, of the empire that he has, racing yachts and a whole business. But he still has a zest for life. He likes to share his wealth. He is a person who is magnanimous and altruistic, but he is all man and outdoorsman, and he knows how to live life and to enjoy life. He is not a reclusive, bitter, uh, miserly kind of a multimillionaire. But he's quite a man, a man that I think you could admire. I know, as for me and my family, that I have seen a bitter lesson in my own personal life. And that it is one of my goals that through the writing of books, through doing other things, even unrelated to my church activity, because I could never earn a salary that I have determined for the sake of my family and my children, I shall earn, you see. So I understand that. But I will, as God will help me, to do all I can that when I am gone, and I could go next week or tomorrow, the next day, I understand that. That's what the Bible says. I would hope that my children would have a pretty good-sized head start in life and that I can leave something, not only to my children, but Ralph and I share this together, even to my children's children. <laughs>